Matthew 21. We'll begin reading this morning where he left off, now in verse 18 of chapter 21. Jesus has been at Jerusalem. He came riding on a donkey, fulfilling the prophecy of Zacharias. Behold, your king comes riding on a donkey, a foal of a donkey, humble, riding on a donkey. He did that. He entered the temple. And the very first thing he saw while entering into the court of the Gentiles were all the tables for the money changers, those who were exchanging Roman coin with a Hebrew shekel, examining the lambs that were being brought by the people for their annual sacrifice on the day of Passover coming up soon. They needed to present their animals before the specialists at the tables in that court of the Gentiles where they would inspect those lambs or goats. And if there were any blemish, and you can be sure that they found some kind of a blemish, They told the people, well, you can't offer that sacrifice. We'll have to give you one of ours. So we'll pay you for yours, but uh, ours are a little bit more expensive than what we'll be able to pay you for yours because of the blemish, obviously. The people condescended to this demand of the priests and Levites who were doing such things. And then they would turn around and sell the people's lambs to the next group of people that came in saying the same thing, making a huge profit. Even Josephus, a Jew, yes, but one who wrote for Rome. He was a very, what you would call, liberal Jew in his day. He wrote about these things. Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, his uncle, taking advantage of the people, charging exorbitant fees for the exchange of their money, and for the purchase of their sacrificial animals. The people who had come from great distances had no other alternative, but they made a whole lot of money every Passover season because of this. And they were doing it in the temple area of the city of Jerusalem, the city of God, the holy place, in sight of the temple. Jesus entered into that terrible marketplace, and he began to turn the tables saying, you have made my father's house, which is supposed to be a house of prayer. You've turned it into a den of thieves. Yes, he was angry. But take note of something. The leaders, the religious leaders of that day, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, they were all present. Levitical priests, they were all there. They never laid a finger on him for having done such things because they knew he was right. And they were afraid of him. They hated him. And you can be absolutely certain they wanted him dead because he was interfering with their prophets, with their reputation, and they were jealous of his wonderful ministry that he had done for already three and a half years. They knew everything that he had done, all the miraculous things that he had done in Galilee and in Judea and in Samaria, but they would not believe him. They refused to accept 
him as their Messiah. Jesus left that temple area that day, which was apparently on Sunday, and he came back the next day, early in the morning. And that's where we find Matthew continuing the story with this account. Verse 18 says, Now in the morning as he returned to the city, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves. And he said to it, Let no fruit grow on you again. And immediately the fig tree withered away. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither away so soon? So Jesus answered and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, Be removed and cast into the sea, it will be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we know this word that you have given to us in this wonderful gospel record doesn't only apply to them who lived in that day. Help us to apply it today in our present hour. Help us to see, Lord God, what you are saying to the church by your Spirit. And we give you praise for it, O God, in Jesus' holy name. Amen. In the morning he returned to the city. He was hungry. He had been staying, according to other accounts, at his friend's house, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, in a little town of Bethany, just outside of Jerusalem. You may recall in John's Gospel that John records that Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead, not more than a week prior to this. And many people believed. Many people saw that and were absolutely convinced that this is the power of God manifest in this individual. He must be the Messiah. That's why when he came into the city, so many of them were saying, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were proclaiming Psalm 118, the fact that he is indeed the king who was to come according to the Holy Scriptures. And he came exactly on the right day. We saw that last week. I hope you remember those details because they are very, very important as we move forward in our continuation of the study of this great gospel record. Jesus fulfilled prophecy, Zechariah's prophecy. He fulfilled Daniel to the day, 173,880 days after the fact that the proclamation was given by Artaxerxes to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. These cannot be refuted. He was indeed the one who was to come. But they would not receive it. And so on this second day, Monday, the second day of the week, Jesus is now coming back into the city and he sees a fig tree on his way. Now, this is in the springtime. Again, this is Passover season. And if you know anything about fig trees, fig trees aren't really ready for harvest until the fall when the full ripe harvest of figs is taken in. But in the springtime, the tree typically begins to leaf out, as most trees do in our springtime that we see around here. But 
There was an expectation of early fruit. The early figs should have been on that tree, apparently, by this time. But when Jesus looked at the tree, he saw only leaves. This is the only miracle that Jesus does where he expresses judgment against an object or a person. In in this case, an object, the tree, was judged for the fact that it did not have fruit. Now, if it were just the fact that it was a tree that Jesus physically cursed and went on his way, then we could skip this whole passage as being something of just a story that has no application. However, that's not the case. There is application to this. Because the tree, the fig tree, represents the nation of Israel. All throughout the Old Testament Scriptures, we find that in Joshua's record, in Joshua's great book in the Old Testament. We find it in Jeremiah. We find it in Joel. We find it elsewhere. The fig tree is representing Israel in many, many places in the Old Testament Scriptures. So when we look at this passage, recognize the fact that Jesus is not just cursing physically a tree. He is cursing His own nation of Israel. Because there was no fruit. Let that sink in. There should have been fruit. But there was none. Let no fruit grow on you ever again. Well, we know that Israel ceased to be a nation in 70 A.D. They were finally overwhelmed, overridden by the Roman armies. Jerusalem was captured. The city was completely destroyed. The temple was completely destroyed, burned to the ground. We will see in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 24, a more specific prediction, prophecy, of that particular series of events. But we know from history that Israel was dispersed. The diaspora will have begun after 70 A.D. They would be removed from the land. They would no longer be a nation. And it seems that what Jesus is saying in this passage, let no fruit grow on you ever again, has begun with those events. Literally, this fig tree represents the nation of Israel. However, whenever you see God's judgment upon a people, you will always see following that judgment His mercy extended to that same group of people. All the way through the Old Testament Scriptures, we see that. And so then it can be and should be expected that although Jesus said, let no fruit be found on you forever, that there is an opportunity for them to turn and return to Him. And that opportunity will soon be, I believe, fulfilled. In the present nation of the Jews living in that same area that once belonged to them and now does again, except that the world isn't wanting to accept their having occupied that land once again. 
So there is resistance to them coming into the land, to them proclaiming Jerusalem as their capital. There is no way that they are going to, at least at the present hour, build another temple in Jerusalem. But all of that is about to change, I believe, and soon. But the point is, Ezekiel chapter 36 spoke of the fact that there would be a return of the nation of Israel. They would come alive, though they were dead. And that happened in 1948, my friends. That began then. The Valley of Dry Bones, described in Ezekiel's prophetic word, it is indeed being fulfilled even now. But they haven't been filled with the Spirit yet. They haven't yet turned to their God fully. Oh, there are some who are Orthodox Jews who believe in the Word of God, at least as far as the Old Testament is concerned, but they have not yet received Christ as their Messiah. So they still have a blindness over their eyes. But that veil will be lifted, according to Romans chapter 11. And I'm convinced, and I hope you are, that God's not through with His people Israel. Yes, they were without fruit, but there's coming a day when there will be fruit. It will be revived. It will be reestablished. They will become a people of God once again. But what about us? Does any of this apply to us? Is Jesus looking down at His church today? What is He seeing? We're also told in John's Gospel that He is the vine. We are the branches. John 15, turn there with me. If you receive it, the church has become, at least temporarily, what Israel should have been. We've been planted, grafted in. Romans chapter 9 and 10 tell us that. But here in John's Gospel, chapter 15, we, the church, are represented as a vine and its branches And this is what Jesus has to say. Familiar to many of you, I'm sure. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, He prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Now, He's talking about, this time, not figs, but grapes, a vine. But remember also, The Old Testament speaks of Israel as the vine, the vineyard of God. Just like the fig tree, it's a perfect representation of the people who once lived in the land and the vine went everywhere to the Mediterranean Sea and to the Euphrates, spread like wildfire, and they grew and they were very, very strong as a nation. But they became corrupt. And God allowed that vine 
to no longer produce its fruit. It withered away, just like the fig tree. Another example of the judgment of God upon the nation of Israel. But, again, in Romans chapters 9 and 10, you need to read those carefully because in those passages he talks about the fact that the people of God, the nation of Israel, will be grafted back in as he chooses to have them do so. Here in this passage, he's talking about the church, you and I, in this present hour. We're attached to a vine, not just any vine, but the vine, the only vine that can be the source of life for all of us. It's a wonderful example here in this Word of God, in this illustration that Jesus is here giving. Again, read it with me. Verse 1 says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Some of your translations may say husbandman. The idea is that the Father dresses the vine. The Father prunes the vine. It says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. The Father does. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. The purpose of any vine dresser who has any idea what he is doing with the vine is to bring forth more fruit. And again, fruit is the picture that is being presented here, just like it was with regard to the fig tree that Jesus cursed. Here, Jesus is saying, you are expected and I am expected to bear much fruit. How is that done? Through the pruning process that the Lord God Almighty does in our lives. And if we are willing, if we abide in the vine, which means, by the way, you're already attached to the vine, but abiding in the vine means that you're going to stay, remain attached to the vine. You are already clean, he says in verse 3, because of the word which I have spoken to you. That's this word that we're reading here today. Abide in me, verse 4 says, and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. Jesus is making it so, so very clear here. We need to stay attached to the vine. That's the only source of life, of a power that only He can provide. It's the only source of peace that only He can give. It's the only source of hope that we can have in knowing that we are God's children. It's the only source of faith that we can rely on to live for Him all the days of our lives. Stay attached to the vine. That's our responsibility. Remain abiding in Him. And when you do, He remains in you. That's His promise. He will never leave you nor forsake you. He holds you in the palm of His hand in another place. He says these things. Be aware of the presence of God in your life and trust in Him and ask for more fruit in your life. And we'll share momentarily how you can receive that more fruit. But I want to continue reading here in John's Gospel. Chapter 5 of verse 15 continues and says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you and I can do nothing. Without him, we are without hope. We're helpless. But with him, with him in us and we in him, 
we can do things that none of us could have ever imagined our ability to comprehend the things that we can do for Him and through Him and by Him if we let Him. And that's how we bear much fruit. That's how we manifest this wonderful gift that God has given us, the Spirit of God who dwells in us, enables us to do those things that we cannot do ourselves. Remember, He said it here, Without me, you can do nothing. I take that as a matter-of-fact statement that Jesus is making here. Or we can try to do our own righteousness, but don't you remember that the Word of God tells us our righteousness is as filthy rags? It means nothing to God. We need His righteousness. We need His power. And it only comes in one way alone, as it's through the Spirit of God who dwells in us, who believe. Verse 6 says, If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. That's what happened to Israel. That's what happened when Jesus cursed the fig tree. They were rejected because they rejected him. Not the other way around. He loved them, and he still does. But because they rejected him, he allowed them to suffer the consequences of that rejection. This whole series of events that we'll be looking at in Matthew's Gospel from this point on until the crucifixion will point to this one fact. The leaders of the Jews hated him and wanted him dead. They just couldn't figure out how to do it. In fact... They decided amongst themselves that yes, they would have him put to death, but after the Passover. Because they didn't want to do it during their high season of worship where all the people were gathered in Jerusalem because they feared the people. But they had plans. And they were trying to make it so that they could effectively do what they wanted to do secretly and after the Passover. But guess what? That wasn't God's timetable. God had a perfect plan, a specific plan, and it has to do with specific dates and times and procedures and methods. And they would not thwart the plan of God. They only helped the plan of God. And we'll see as we continue reading through Matthew's Gospel that they were just simply being used by God in spite of the fact that they thought they were doing what they believed to be the right thing. Well, it was certainly not the right thing, but it was what God intended for them to do to accomplish what God wanted to be done. Oh, how perfect is the Word of God in every way. And the plan of God always works out the way He chooses for it to work out. Every time. Continuing on in John's Gospel, let's finish reading that little section of the vine and the branches because it's important. Verse 7 and 8. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. We just read that in Matthew's Gospel, remember? That needs some clarification, and we'll give that momentarily. But verse 8 says, By this my Father is glorified. By what? By you abiding in him. And your words are His words abiding in you. Your words are His words 
When you ask according to His words in you, you're asking correctly, rightly, and it will be answered. By this, he says in verse 8, My Father is glorified that you might bear much fruit. So you'll be my disciples. Bear much fruit. Oh, how I long to be used by the Lord and bearing much fruit for His glory. I want so much to be a part of what the Lord is doing in these last days, shining His light, showing His love, revealing His truth. I want to bear fruit, much fruit. And I hope that you do also. So where does that come from? I submit to you that Paul answers that question very wonderfully in the book of Galatians. Turn to Galatians chapter 5 with me this morning. In Galatians, we have the argument of the Apostle Paul in favor of grace and against the Mosaic law, the Levitical law. And he presents a marvelous case in this gospel of this letter that he wrote to the Galatian church. The law had limitations. Oh, yes, it was filled with thou shalt nots. A total of 613 laws that they needed to obey explicitly in order to be able to say, my God loves me and has saved me and given me eternal life by faith in my keeping the law. The problem was nobody could do so. The law was a schoolmaster. It taught them something. It basically was teaching them that because of their sin nature, they could not completely fulfill all that was required in the law. They needed another way for them to be able to enter into the presence of God. And it wasn't through sacrifices, because that was never permanent. They had to do sacrifices daily. It was an ugly system. Blood, guts everywhere. But they did it faithfully, thinking that that was the only way they could enter into the presence of their God. Very few even came even close. But close is only good in horseshoes, my friends. If you can't do it all, the Lord's very, very clear on this. You miss it in any one point, you've missed it in every one of them. You can't come to God by doing. Well, how can we come? What provision has been made for us to be able to enter into the place where the Holy God resides? Because it's very clear in the Old Testament Scripture and in the New. One of my favorite Psalms, Psalm 27, David is just proclaiming, Oh, I love the Lord God, my God. And there's nothing else that I desire except to enter into His tabernacle, His temple, to see His face, His glory, His beauty, inquire, inquire of His righteousness. That's the heart of a man who loved the Lord. And it was by faith that he could proclaim that which he was proclaiming throughout the Psalms that he wrote. Yes, he was a sinner. But he came by faith, knowing that his God forgave his transgressions. 
cast them as far as the east is from the west, buried them in the sea of forgetfulness. His God was the God of glory, and he worshipped him, even though the temple hadn't yet been constructed. Oh, he wanted to come into the place where he could see his God dwelling among them. Many other Old Testament saints said the same as David. Read through the Scriptures and you'll see clearly that there was a connection in every one of those Old Testament saints and that connection was faith. They didn't have everything that we have. They longed for that which we have. The writer of Hebrews tells us that they really had a handle on the fact that you must come by faith. But they didn't really know all of the details that we have presently. But that doesn't exclude them from the fact that they trusted in God to complete what He had promised. It's by faith that we are saved. Same now. The just shall live by faith. Came from Hosea, the Old Testament prophet. The just shall live by faith. So there must have been a way, even for them, trying to be obedient to the law. What was it? They had faith in what had been revealed to them. It's not full revelation, but what they had, they believed. And God accounted that to them, just like He did with Abraham, as faith. But Paul is telling the Galatian church, who was, who were being convinced by Jews who would come into that territory after Paul had been there, and they're trying to convince these Gentile believers now to be circumcised, that they had to obey the law in order to be saved. And Paul's writing to the Galatian church saying, Who has bewitched you? It's never, ever acceptable for anyone to teach Jesus Christ plus something. So Paul makes a distinction here between the law and grace. In chapter 5 again, writing to the Galatian church, beginning with verse 16, he says, I say then, walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That's how you deal with the sin issue in your life. Walk in the Spirit. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. By the way, that's exactly what Paul was dealing with in Romans chapter 7 in his own life. I decided to do things that I shouldn't do. I don't do the things that I should do. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Paul answered that question in Romans chapter 7 and in 8. I thank my God. Through Christ Jesus, my Lord, there is now therefore no condemnation. So he says, the lust of the flesh fights against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another. Contrary. That means they're opposites. Like faith and doubt are contrary. They can't coexist. Faith is absolutely essential. And the Spirit who dwells in us, who have by faith accepted the gift, have these assurances. 
In verse 18, he says, But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. And he's going to give a list here. Let's get through them quickly, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambition, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And that's not an exclusive list. That's just one of several that Paul gives. There are other things that he mentions as well elsewhere, but let's just say that this is enough to condemn almost every single one of us here. But, B-U-T, but, verse 20, the fruit, back to fruit again. I bet you thought we weren't going to get there. Back to the fruit. Remember, Jesus is looking for fruit in our lives. Jesus is saying that it is God's purpose and plan for all of us to bear much fruit. This is what we do in order to bear much fruit. We rely on the Spirit of God who dwells in us, who battles against the flesh. Don't let the flesh have its victory because that's what it's going to continue to do as long as you have breath. But you have the Spirit of God who is in you. And because you have the Spirit of God in you at the time of conversion, you have been enabled by Him to live for God in a way that will please Him and be bearing much fruit. And this is the fruit that He wants to see in all of us. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such there is no law. Finally, he says in verse 24, those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Repeating verse 16 again, let us walk in the Spirit. That's how we bear fruit. And that's what the fruit looks like. Love, joy, peace, gentleness, long-suffering, kindness. All of those things are part of who we are in Christ. And if we manifest that fruit, it will be noticed that we are indeed fruit bearers for the glory of God. That's my hope for all of us. That we, unlike the people who were leading the Jews astray in the days of Jesus whose leadership resulted in a total failure of their Judaic system that required God to judge them in a very harsh way because they were not bearing fruit. They were full of evidence of life. The tree had plenty of leaves, but there was no fruit. He was all deception. Don't let that be the case with you. I hope it's not the case with me. I want to have more fruit than leaves. Leaves are good. Leaves indicate there's life. I don't want this tree to be withered. But I want it to be more than just leaves. In our present day, Oh, God, help us to be fruit-bearing trees. 
Let it be so, Lord God, for each one of us here in this place, that we would so walk in the Spirit and so be led by your Spirit that people will see that we are indeed yours. You're a special people. And as we do so, Lord God, let there be much fruit. And if it requires, O oh God, pruning of the branches, however difficult that may be for us to endure, let it be, O oh God, and let the fruit remain. And I ask this, O oh Lord, in Jesus' holy name, for your glory. Amen. We didn't get very far in this morning's study on Gospel of Matthew, but I hope that today you understand the great need that is before us for this season of our lives. Let us end with again the reading of verses 21 and following. Jesus answered to them after they saw that the fig tree had withered away, Assuredly, Jesus says, I said to you, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea, it will be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. People of God, that's not a blank check for you to ask for anything that your little heart desires. Remember what Jesus said in John's Gospel. He is in you. You are in Him. And if you ask, you are asking what He would ask, not what you would ask. Remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying to His Father, saying, Not my will, but thine be done. Never ever think that you can ask for anything and expect God to give it if it isn't His will to do so. But here is the promise. To those who have denied themselves and taken up their cross to follow Him, this is the promise that you, knowing His will, are asking for His will to be filled in your life, and He will do it. That's His promise. Expect it, and bear much fruit in the process.